and the tulip trees are blooming and there's not another human in view but us two it's a lazy afternoon and the farmer leaves his reaping in the meadow cows are sleeping and the speckled trout stop leaping upstream as we dream a fat pink cloud hangs over the hill hello and welcome to broadway radios this week on broadway for sunday august 1st 2021 my name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns are here at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hello. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello, hello. <laughs> that was for Billy. That was for Billy. He can explain what that is. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to introduce Billy first. Uh, so with us this morning, we have a very special guest. Billy Stritch is joining us. Hi, guys. And I don't know how this has happened, but yeah, we were. uh, I was going back and saying we must have had Billy on before, and because he is mentioned, you know, almost every other week since two thousand nine in our (laughs) in our discussions. But we've never had the chance to actually have Billy on. So, Billy, thank you so much for joining us on Broadway Radio. Well, you've got me now, and uh, thank you, guys. Three of my favorite theater guys today. I love nice thing to say. I got to be on my toes. (laughs) So you have. Have um, a new album called Billy's Place. Yes, and you have a symphonic s- single, "Ordinary Miracles," with forty-six piece orchestra. I know it's so exciting. Did they all real... do it in your kitchen? Yes, How did you they do that? Did, absolutely, they did it in my massive, huge apartment here in Manhattan, <laughs> overlooking. No, uh, <clears throat> they actually did the um, the orchestral part without me. You know, as quite often is done. I had recorded the uh, piano vocal part as part of the album, Billy's Place. And that was released uh, late last year. And then our, my producer, my fantastic producer, was also a brilliant orchestrator. His name is Wayne Hahn. He came to me early this year and said, you know, I'd love to add an orchestra to that track and release it as a single. And I'm like, I'd love that too. I mean, why wouldn't I love that? So he did that in late May and sent me the track a couple of months ago, and I just couldn't believe it. I mean, it's just it's just so thrilling to hear a big orchestra and his amazing work, you know, surrounding such a fantastic song. It's called Ordinary Miracles, and it was written by Alan and Marilyn Bergman and Marvin Hamlish, and it's beautiful, inspirational, stirring, anthemic kind of song, and I'm, I'm thrilled about it. That song had, uh, uh, I mean, I first became aware of that song some years ago through Barbara Streisand Yes, uh, in one of her concert tours. But wasn't it, uh, let's see, who else has recorded it? Anne Hampton Calloway, I think? Probably so. That and, sounds right. 
Yeah, and uh, it's 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 a it really is a beautiful song. It hasn't been covered a whole lot, uh, but I think it was written for Streisand. I think in maybe 1987. I might be wrong about the year, but it was it's been a while, and it was written for some big event, some big concert. I want to say it was some fundraiser or some. You know, one of those kind of kind of. I things. think maybe it was her first big comeback. Oh, could have been. Sure. Yeah, yeah, could have been. Sure, yeah. sure. Anyway, it's it's a, it's a thrilling song. Michael, we don't call it a comeback. <laughs> we call it a return. It's a return. I I apologize. <laughs> okay. She is still big. Uh, she is still big. She really is. is. She never went away. <laughs> so, Billy, you have uh, some concerts coming up. Uh, to start off, we're kicking off here in New York City, Thursday, August 5th through Saturday, August 7th. So tell us about this. And you're also going to do a national tour. Well, it's somewhat of a national tour. I'm going to, yes. Uh, but the first, first things first, I'll be at Birdland this week. Thursday through Saturday. And, you know, Birdland is just, I mean, you guys have all been there. It's just Mm -hmm. such a fantastic club. It's really been my performing home for 20 years at least, you know, and and it feels like family to work there. But what's exciting about this for me is it's the, I, I think it's the first time that I've actually really headlined on the main stage in the main, you know, slot, you know, really? like, yeah, I mean, I've done like uh, every Tuesday, every Sunday, that kind of thing, or work downstairs in the Birdland Theater on a run. But, you know, this is like, I feel like it's the big time, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled that they, they, uh, they gave me this spot for five shows. It's one show Thursday and then two shows Friday and Saturday. It feels like, feels like show business, you know, it's just fantastic. <laughs> and uh, it's, an ex- it's a great excuse for me to celebrate the, the new CD that came out, as I said, last year. Uh, but, you know, of course, I don't know if you know, we were in the midst of a pandemic here in New York. Really? So. <laughs> yeah, really. Uh, which kind of, you know, made it impossible mm. to do a big release event, you know, a big party, a big celebration. So uh, I thought, well, you know, this is the time to do it. So even though the album didn't just come out, it's been out a little while, but uh, we're going to celebrate that. And, um, you know, I'm thrilled to be working on a, on that stage with a trio in front of an audience, I mean, it's just, it's very exciting to me. You know, the return, not a comeback, a return. <laughs> this is true. This is uh, true. We, uh, we were lucky enough to talk to Michael and Tom Dangora a few weeks ago. And, oh, uh, I love them. And thank goodness that they were able to, uh, you know, participate and arrange for the saving of so many uh, great venues in and around New York City, and Birdland's just one of them. Uh, and your relationship with these rooms in New York go back such a long way, not only as a performer, but um, as I mentioned, we haven't had you on, so we might have to ask some remedial questions <laughs> that everybody should know. But you've had a little bit of an impact on on Liza Minnelli's uh, career there. So talk about how you got to get that first gig with Liza. Oh God! Well, I've, it's a, it's an interesting story. I mean, I, I've told it a few times. Um, I spent almost all of the '80s working with a vocal group called Montgomery Plant and Stritch. And even though we were based in Houston, Texas, at that point, we were working quite a lot in New York and at the Algonquin and the Carlisle and, and overseas jazz festivals. And uh, uh, it was a great almost nine-year run. And then we broke up at the end of 1990. And I thought, well, this is time for me to actually bite the bullet and just relocate 
to New York because I had made so many connections and so many friends by that point. And, and uh, so that's what I did. And, and I, then the next thing was like, well, I got to find some work. So um, luckily I had made a really good friend, a guy named Bob Nahas, who you guys might know, uh, who used to run a rest, own a restaurant called Curtain Up years ago. And in 1991, he ran a restaurant, had a restaurant on Theater Row called Bobo's. And um, Cheetah Rivera was a partner in that restaurant. Um, it was short-lived, but uh, he had a piano bar in the front. It was a big space. And he said, well, come and work a couple of nights a week here. You know, that's fine. So I think I was doing maybe Tuesdays and Fridays at the piano bar. And I would go in, uh, you know, one night. This happened three or four times. I would go in and Bob would say, well, you just missed her. She was here last night, you know, talk, <laughs> talking about Liza, you know. So Liza was like going in a lot and being seen there and talking, talking it up. But we just didn't happen to be there on the same night. But after this happened three or four times, I thought, well, I'm, it's bound to happen. You know, it happens sometime, maybe this time. <laughs> um, and I was a huge fan, of course, as we all. I was a huge fan from the time Cabaret and Lice with a Z came out. So I walk in there one night, and I, I remember it was March the 7th, 1991. <laughs> and I go in there, and um, Bob, there's very few people in the room, but Bob walks by and goes, she's over there, she's over there. So I look at the far side of the room, and there were four women all dressed in black. And I found out later it was Lisa Mordente, who I already knew, mm -hmm. Gina's daughter, and Tara Young, who was Liza's uh, uh, dance, Susan Stroman's dance ass assistant, and Liza's assistant, Melanie. And uh, I found all this out after the fact, but I thought, okay, all right, this is the night. And so I thought, I'm just playing, I'm cool, there's no one at the piano bar thinking, how do I get her over here? And me, I'm not the type to play New York, New York. Or cabaret. Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, she gets that all the time. Mm -hmm. So finally, after a few minutes, the light went on. And I started playing the theme to a film called The Bad and the Beautiful. And mm -hmm. it's one of her father's fantastic films. Mm -hmm. The gorgeous theme and score by David Raxon. Mm -hmm. And I start playing it. And I see her start to get up and walk over. And I'm just trying to play it cool. Um, but she walks over. She's kind of looking at me with very friendly eyes and a smile. And so there was nothing, you know, like she she made me feel right at ease. She came over and sat right next to me at the, on the piano bench. And she told me later that I gave her a look like, what are you doing sitting next to me? I can't imagine I did that. She <laughs> sat and she goes, how do you know that song? I said, well, it's from one of my 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 favorite film. She goes, you know, my father directed that movie. I'm Liza, by the way. I'm like, mm -hmm. uh, I got that. And yes, I love the movie. And I know your father directed it. Well, that got her to the piano. She never went back to her dinner. She stayed there next to me. People joined her. Cheetah came in later. Just by the end of the night, it was packed with people. We were playing and singing and she was singing and I was playing. Do you know this? Do you know this? And at one point she said, do you know Teach Me Tonight? I said, sure, I know it. I mean, I had not, wasn't really one, a song that I sung a lot, but but I knew the song. So I <clears throat> kind of launched into an impromptu version of that. And she said, you know, I want to use that as my opening number for this show, this little show I'm doing at Radio City Music Hall. I'm sure she didn't say this little show. But, <laughs> you know, at that point, at that particular moment in time, you couldn't go down the street without seeing Liza on a taxi cab, Liza on a bus, Liza on a billboard, all in support of this engagement at Radio City Music Hall that was coming up. 
And uh, she said, I want to open with that song. Could you help me with the arrangement? And I said, well, well, sure. So come down to 890 Broadway on Monday if you can. If you've got some time, come down. So I showed up probably before anybody for the rehearsal and never left, guys. I never left. And there were 12 women in the show who she called her Demon Divas. I don't know if you remember, but they all yes. popped up out of the audience mm-hmm. yeah. in Act 2. And so... Um, I started doing vocal arrangements and laying out little medleys and stuff. And finally, Fred Ebb said to Lisa, we got to hire this kid. So within like a week and a half, I was on the, I was on the payroll and on staff. And that's how that came about. She and I never left each other's side at that point. So I started out arranging for her. And then when she took the show on the road, I went on the road with her just to kind of hang out and be there and help the girls with the warm-ups and all that, all that stuff. And then in the middle of that summer of 91, she asked me if I would accompany her to Paris to do a month of shows with Charles Aznavour at the Palais de Congrès and actually perform in the show with her. He didn't have to twist my arm. <laughs> so, um, so I started off performing with her. I was arranging for a period of time. I was oh, the opening act when we would do shows in Vegas and overseas. And then, and then after a few years, I kind of settled into accompanist and then a conductor, you know, she had a wonderful drummer, Bill Avornia, who was her, her conductor from the drums. But uh, uh, once he passed away, the baton was kind of turned over to Michael Berkowitz and then it was turned over to me. So the last few years of that, I was conducting as well. So it was 25 years guys. And it was fantastic. And I have to say, and I always credit her with really, you know, putting me on the map. I mean, I had done a lot of work and was already kind of known in cabaret circles and some jazz circles, but internationally, I mean, you know, she took me to so many places. I, I met so many people and would always introduce me and always put my name out there. And, uh, you know, it really was a big turning point for me for sure. All right. But yeah, you are, you are a late um, era baby boomer. And yes. you grew up in Texas. Yes. I mean, how does somebody with that type of background find this music? How did you get along with kids in school who uh, obviously weren't uh, taken with the type of music we're talking about? Uh, I'm, I'm sure there are many bad and beautiful people in, uh, in uh. Chicagoland, Texas. But nevertheless, come on. I mean, this is not the era where kids would know these songs. What got you interested in this type of music as opposed well, to the type of music your peers were listening to? Um, interestingly enough, Peter, it was uh, watching Carol Burnett show, <laughs> watching uh-huh. Sonny and Cher, because, you know, every at one point in every hour of their show, Cher would sing a standard, you know, like, uh, you made me love you or something uh-huh. like that, you know. Um, and Carol Burnett would always end the shows with these 10-minute musical extravaganzas. So that I'm like 9, 10 years old. I'm hearing this great music, tributes to Fred Astaire and the Gershwins, and just loving it. And then my grandmother would give me gifts that were related to that, like record album, record sets of Nat King Cole and the George Gershwin songbook. So I really, you know, it's just weird when you love the music, you find it. And of course, this is way before YouTube or, you know, everything was not that accessible. But from the time I had my own little amount of spending money, I was spending money on those kind of records. 
I also had a really good friend who was my age and his parents had a jukebox in their house and it was all filled wow. with big band music. Uh-huh. Lynn Miller, Charlie Barnett, uh-huh. the Dorseys, uh, with the great vocalists, you know, so I heard this music. Now, kids my age were not into this music. No. <laughs> but when by the time I was 10 years old, I was playing, you know, all I was starting to really play it by ear. And also I was playing, you know, I was learning Olivia Newton-John songs and Neil uh-huh. Sedaka songs okay. and the Car- Carpenters and uh-huh. stuff like that. So, you know, I was learning stuff that was on the radio in the 70s okay. as well. All right. All right. So, you know, I don't think it, it's funny because you say kid from Texas, but, you know, if you love the music and you you just hear a little bit of it, you seek it out, you know, and I've heard this from lots of people. We all seem to find it somehow. All right. So you found that music and I can understand that. But before we went on the air, um, I will tell our listeners that you made an allusion to uh, a song from Jamaica, a 1957 musical that's reasonably obscure these days. Needless to say, even though it was a hit way back then, what got you interested in the Broadway side of it? Oh, my grandmother would take me to see whatever show was coming to town. Uh, when I was nine, 10, 11, 12, you know, I was, she really got me. I just loved going to the theater with her. I loved her. And uh, she was just, she got me. She really just got that. I love this stuff. So, you know, Ginger Rogers in Maine, uh-huh. Barbara Eden and the unsinkable Molly Brown, uh-huh. <laughs> Debbie Reynolds coming to town with her Vegas show, mm-hmm. you know, um, I mean, just whatever was coming to town. Plus she had season tickets to the alley theater. Uh-huh. So I saw a lot of straight plays as well as musicals there. So mm-hmm. I was really bitten by that theater bug at an early age. And then of course you learn standards like come rain or come shine and you, Oh, it's from a musical called St. Louis woman. You mm-hmm. learn that. Then you get into uh, you know, you hear Barbara Streisand sing. I never has seen snow. Uh-huh. And then you get into house of flowers and, mm-hmm. you know, it's just one thing leads to the next, to the next. So, uh-huh. No, that does, that does make sense to me. But uh, in terms of uh, that, how did the, your appearance in 42nd street happen? Well, I always, you know, I always thought it would be so much fun to be in a Broadway show. And when I was still living in, in Houston um, in my 20s, I was uh, we were I was working with the vocal group. But of course, on our downtime, we were in Houston and Mark Bramble, who was one of the book writers, along with Michael Stewart of 42nd Street, came to University of Houston to direct and develop a children's show for their children's theater festival. And I went and she, he was auditioning a lot of the university kids and I knew them all. And I ended up playing a lot of their auditions. And at the end of the audition day, he pointed me and said, you, what are you doing? You know, I need you to musical direct this thing. So, you know, and I was thrilled because he was a New York guy. He'd done mm-hmm. Barnum and 42nd mm-hmm. street mm-hmm. and we got along great. And, and uh, so I did that show with him. At that point, he was living most of the time in London, and he invited me to come to London for the first time. Um, we just, our friendship just developed and extended for many years. And when he was going to do this big revival in 2001 of 42nd Street, we were having dinner when I said, surely there must be a part for me. And he was like, oh, well, you know, there's, <laughs> there's Oscar, the pianist, but he doesn't have any lines. You know, that's not really a part. I said, well, could it be a little bit of a part? <laughs> so, so he made it work for me. You know, literally, guys, I had four lines. I had four lines in the show, 
and I sang about 16 bars of music. So if you blinked, you would have missed me. But he gave me this wonderful chance to be in a Broadway show, to get my equity card, and to meet, you know, 50 fantastic people and, and create some friendships that have gone on. I mean, I never would have met Christine Ebersole had it not been for 42nd sure. Street. And we've gone on to record together and mm-hmm. work together. And mm-hmm. um, um, so that's how that came about. It was due to, due to my friendship with Mark Bramble. Okay, now, do I get the prize for being the millionth person to ask if you're related to Elaine Stritch? <laughs> uh, maybe the two millionth person okay, to ask right. that. Oh, so uh, then I don't get a prize. Okay. You don't You don't get a prize because we're not related. <laughs> uh, I met her years ago in the 80s when I had my vocal group, uh, and we and I actually played for her at a couple of events, and, uh, and we're not related. Honestly, full disclosure, uh, my name, S-T-R-I-T-C-H, uh, was is not originally spelled that way. It's oh. always been pronounced that way, but it was not spelled that way. So when I went into the business, <laughs> I changed the spelling of my name. So we are really not related, but uh, it's so funny because, you know, it's not funny when she passed away, but the day that she did die, mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. got like 500 notes uh. of condolence on Facebook and I had to actually do a posting say, although I love the lady and I worked mm-hmm. together, we weren't related and this, the condolences still kept, kept coming in. And mm-hmm. I still get asked that all the time. It's funny when I changed my spelling of my name back when I was 20 years old, I had never heard of her. I didn't uh. know who she was. So, uh, but anyway, I, I digress. We are not related. That's the long answer to your question. <laughs> I was wondering when you uh, when you were buying all those albums as a kid, did you buy any albums by Tony Bennett? Uh, he, I knew who Tony Bennett was. He wasn't like the, the the top singer that I was listening to at that point. I mean, I certainly was very aware of him. I was more into Mel Torme and Nat Cole and. Frank Sinatra to a, a degree, um, uh, more the the jazzier types of singers, and and also I loved Ella Fitzgerald and Carmen McRae and the and the ladies. You know, that's that's who I listened to, but uh, and certainly I was very aware of Tony Bennett. But uh, um, yes, I, he was not the first my my go to um, uh, favorite, but uh, certainly that. I got a chance to work with him, and that was a fantastic experience. Yeah, I did. that's why I brought it up. I was yeah. like, how, did, how did that happen? I just got a call one day. It was so weird. I had met him several times through Liza back in the, uh, oh, gosh, probably back in the 90s. He recorded an album called Here's to the Ladies. Right. And uh, it was each song was a tribute to a different person, different woman. And he did a, a TV special kind of based on that. And so and I remember it was filmed at the Pantages in LA and he and Liza did an arrangement of maybe this time that I arranged. So I met him the day we laid the arrangement out. Uh, He also was on the Oprah Winfrey show one Christmas that Liza and I were on it. So I I met him a few times. Um, So he knew me. And then when there was the big 90th birthday celebration at Radio City Music Hall for him. Oh, yes, I was at that. Which was 2016. uh, In September of 2016, my friend Greg Field, who's a fantastic producer, married to Monica Mancini, um, had got in touch with me like a month before. And he said, hey, our friend Kevin is going to sing on the show. Will you come one day to rehearse the song? with him, you know, they booked a studio and Kevin, I'm referring to Kevin Spacey, uh, came and 
we rehearsed for two hours on this, uh, if I ruled the world, this arrangement, I kind of laid it out. And at the end of the recession, Kevin said, well, why isn't Billy playing the gig? And I'm like, yeah, Greg, why am I not playing the gig? <laughs> so I ended up playing for Kevin that night. He was fantastic. He's, he's really a wonderful singer. I won't say anything about the rest, but he's got a beautiful singing voice. Um, he sang that night. I saw Tony that night backstage. Well, a couple days later, I'm walking my dog in the park and the phone rings and I pick up and it's like, Hey Billy, it's Tony Bennett. I'm like, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, and how'd you get this number? You know, no. And he tried, he said, I, I'm, I'm looking for somebody new to play for me. I'm wondering if you might be interested in, uh, and, and I said, absolutely. Tony, that would be great. Um, and I, he lives a block from me. You know, I've, I've seen him in the neighborhood. Maybe come over one day and we'll go through some songs. And so we did, we got through like two songs I got the gig. I mean, it came out of, I, I don't know whether it was him just seeing me that night and being reminded of me. I knew he was looking for someone uh, that night even, but I certainly didn't push my way in. But it again, it just kind of came from a direct phone call from him. You know, it didn't go through anyone else. And it was thrilling. And wow. I was offered the gig and I played the, my first gig with him nine days later. Um, they did not have any charts. I mean, I once I accepted the gig and, we came to terms. I called his manager. I said, okay, I need to get the, the, the charts for the music. And she said, well, there's really nothing written down. I'm like, nothing written down. <laughs> you know, well, he had the same four musicians for years and they were, you know, just used to, it just was the same show. So I said, well, I, 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 so we got his, his sound guy, his tech guy sent me recordings of two of his most recent shows and I just sat down, I chained myself to a piano for three days and I wrote out charts for myself oh, so gosh. that I would be able to go in and, and really nail the gig, which I did. So, um, you know, but it, it's weird. It's the only gig I've ever taken where there wasn't anything written down. So, you know, another, uh, of the, go ahead, Michael. Oh, no, just another of the greats that you play for constantly, who was a recent guest on our podcast is Marilyn May. She is pretty great, isn't she? She's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Well, I've known Marilyn 40 years. Wow. We met in Houston, Texas. She was, I mean, actually, I met her 42 years ago uh, when I was 17. She was working at a club in Houston called Roscoe's. And uh, um, everybody, and I think I must have known who she was, although I don't really remember seeing her on The Tonight Show, but I kind of knew the name. And so I was already working in clubs, even though I wasn't really old enough to. And everybody was saying, you got to go hear Marilyn. You're going to love her. She's fantastic. Well, I went one night to hear her. And I just, I'd never seen a nightclub performer before. I'd never mm -hmm. seen someone do an act. And not only that, stand in front of a trio and just be so funny and entertaining and off the cuff and then just nail it so beautifully musically and jazz and just everything and i just just went back night after night after night and basically stalked her you know <laughs> i would go up to her she'd be working the crowd between shows and i'd just be standing behind her following her around asking questions of her and also her pianist who i i was just getting to know and you know i just i don't know you know i just all of a sudden it was all maryland all the time and we got to be good friends she a few years later we ended up living in the same apartment complex so we just hung out all the time and 
And I started working about a year later, there were some gigs that her guy couldn't do. So, uh, you know, I was asked to do those and then I just became one of her, one of her pianists. And I've worked with her ever since off and on, you know, but, uh, Certainly during the Liza years, we did not work together that much. But then, you know, about, I don't know, when the Metropolitan Room opened Hmm. in 2006, maybe, somewhere around there. um, When it opened, I was actually the first person to work that room. Lenny Watts called me out of the blue and said, we're opening a new room um, on, you know, Metropolitan Room. We'd like for you to be the opening act. Okay, great. And it was a charming, as you know, it was a charming, wonderful little room. And not long after that, Marilyn was invited to sing at the cabaret convention. And it was, they were honoring Jerry Herman. Donald Smith knew Marilyn May, loved her, invited her. And she wanted to do a, a gig somewhere as long as she was making the trip. And I said, you know, I got the spot. I've got this perfect little room. We should book you for you know, they'll book you for a few nights. And she goes, Oh honey, I'll never put, no one knows who I am. I'll n- no one will come. <laughs> I'm like, you know, between me and Donald Smith and Mark Sendroff, our attorney, who our lovely friend, uh, who's a fan of all of ours. I said, we'll, we'll get a room of people there. Well, you know, they were lined up out the door <laughs> and the rest is history. I mean, yes. I mean, she has, she took off from then and she has quite rightfully become the queen of cabaret, grand doy. I mean, I don't even know. I don't want to put a label to it, but we all know um, how amazing. I mean, it really, it really started a resurgence and a beautiful third act to her career. And, you know, I'd like to think that I had a little to do with it just because I, I got that first gig going for her back in New York, you know, and she had not, not been working the New York market for maybe 15 years. So, I mean, she worked Michael's pub back in the early nineties and then hadn't worked here in a long time. So it was, she is, I've learned everything I learned about being a good accompanist from her Mm. and taste and medleys, creating medleys and arranging. I mean, she has taught me so much and we laugh a lot, you Mm. know, we have (laughs) great times. Absolutely. Now, the real surprise, of course, in all of this, here we are talking about a certain type of music in a certain type of world, and yet you had a great success with country music. I did, and it kind of really came, you know, out of nowhere. Um, I was doing a lot of writing with a friend of mine, Sandy Knox, uh, down in Houston back in the 80s, and I had this vocal group, as I mentioned, Montgomery Plant and Stritch. It was two women, Sharon Montgomery, Rebecca Plant, and me. And one day Sandy and I sat down and uh, and she came up with the idea. What if we wrote a song for the girls? I have this idea. It's a duet and one's the wife and one's the mistress and they're fighting over the same guy. And so we sat down and several bottles of wine later, we had written this <laughs> song and the group, the girls started doing the song back in 1985. Um, it was a big hit in our act. We always would close the show with it. Uh, our audiences loved it. Uh, we were working mainly gay clubs then. Nobody could remember the name of the song. It's called Does He Love You? Nobody really could remember that, but they always called it, oh, do the bitch fight, the bitch fight. <laughs> so that's, that was the subtitle of the song. So a few years later, Sandy moved to Nashville to pursue her dream of becoming a full-time writer of country music and music in general. And she got a staff position at a publisher and the song was demoed, and then 
a few years after that, 93, Reba McIntyre is looking for a duet to feature this singer that she and her husband were managing named Linda Davis. Somebody remembered the duet. The tape was requested. Reba heard it. She held it, said, I want that song. I mean, literally, it came out. We were not pushing to have the song recorded at that time. I get a call from Sandy saying, Reba has recorded Does He Love You? Now, we got a couple of false starts with it. A few years before that, Barbara Mandrell was going to do it. Then Sheena Easton was going to do it. And nothing ever happened. So at that point, we didn't think anything was ever going to happen. And then it became a big, big hit for Reba and Linda Davis. So, And I just found out it's been re-recorded by Reba and Dolly Parton. So oh, um, wow. I just found that out two days ago. So um, maybe it'll all happen all over again. But I was not pursuing any dream of becoming a writer of country music. Um, that was not on my radar, and um, but but thankfully it became a reality, and it did it did very well for us for sure. I'm familiar with Montgomery Plant and Stritch, though I never saw you perform in that guise. But I recently saw a photo. Was there another um, iteration of the group with Sally Mays in it? Yeah, the first year and a half we were with Sally. It was Montgomery Mays and Stritch. Okay. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because I think you may have seen a photo on my Facebook or something from those early days. Yes. Yeah, 81 and 82, Sally was in the group. We had not really worked in New York too much. Um, and then Sally you know, fell in love with somebody, sidelined, she was going to be in a band, you know, whatever happened, you know, there was not that much at stake at that point. So she moved on, but we wanted to keep going because, you know, Sharon and I were really enjoying it. So we found someone to take her place and went on for seven more years. Great. Billy, I wanted to ask you one last thing before we let you go. Um, Never let me go. (laughs) Love me. No, I'm enjoying this. Go ahead. Ask me. So your 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 album Billy's Place yes. um, was that uh, title come up before or after your Billy's Place on Facebook uh, concerts uh, that you've been doing during the uh, pandemic? It came up after. I mean, I started the Billy's Place live streams last May, uh, May seventh. Um, I have been doing about a two months worth of Wednesday afternoon shows with Linda Lavin mm. since the very beginning of the pandemic. March eighteenth was the first time we did. One And then we were doing Wednesday afternoons, like a half an hour, uh, getting lots of viewership. And then we got about two months into it. And Linda was like, I want to take this week off. I'm not feeling feeling it. So I took the spot. I did my own little 30 minutes from my my apartment. And Linda lived right upstairs. So it was easy for us to get together during a pandemic. Um, and then about three weeks later, I, I picked a Thursday night spot, started doing the Billy's Place. It, it, it took off. Um, and then about three months after that, two or three months after that, I got in touch with Wayne Hahn and Joel Lindsay at Club 44 Records and said, you know, I would love to make, make an album. I had not, I had, didn't have a new album for, God, 12 years, guys. I mean, time flies. But it was definitely time, even before the pandemic, I knew it was time. And I said, I want to just do something really simple, just me and a piano in a studio. I'll come to Nashville. They made it happen. They were all over it. We did it in two days, and it was mastered, and it came out, you know, a few months after that. But it was the song selection was songs that I had uh, learned or had had, had featured on the, the live streams. Um, and some of them have a specific resonance with the pandemic. There's a song called Since You Left New York 
that I wrote with Sandy years ago, but the lyric really took on a, a particular resonance because it's all about, mm. you know, they turned off the lights on old Broadway. They stopped playing jazz in the cabaret. Um, you know, it's about someone who's, you know, New York's not the same without you, but the, 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 the images were really very specific to last year. Um, and then it's a song called Planes by Peter Allen about flying up, you know, uh, flying more and more on planes because we weren't. So that was kind of poignant at that point. So um, it really came out of what we were going through. But it was a, it's a lot of my favorite songs. Skylark, which has always been a favorite since mm. I was 10 years old. Falling in Love with Love, It Might Be You, you know, by the Bergmans and, uh, and Dave Grusin from Tootsie is a great one. Um, and, you know, I'm very grateful to the label for letting me do it. And we did it so quickly and got it out there. And I'm so happy to be celebrating it this week at Birdland, finally. Yeah. Also, before we let you go, we should explain hello, hello. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hello and howdy do. Uh, how you been and hoop de do and a great big text Western howdy, howdy. Uh, that is Kay Thompson and the Williams Brothers. And of course, my connection to that was uh, in 2008. Uh, I arranged and musical directed a show called Liza's at the Palace. Uh, which was a big extravaganza. The first act was Liza alone on, on stage with the band, with the orchestra. And the second act was Liza recreating her godmother, Kay Thompson's nightclub act with the Williams Brothers. And, uh, you know, the, taking the place of the Williams Brothers was Jim Caruso, Cortez Alexander, Tyga Martina, and Johnny Rogers. And that was their big opening song. Hello, hello. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, that's now we've explained that mystery. Thank you. Yeah. Well, Billy, I want to thank you so much for joining us on Broadway Radio. Uh, listeners. Before I leave, I just want to do a quick thing. If I have any friends in Minneapolis, I'll be at Crooners August 14th and 15th. And in the Indianapolis area, I'll be in Carmel, Indiana on the 26th at Feinstein's at the Carmichael. So just wanted to get that in. Hi, Feinstein's. Uh, there, they are making this this Orpheum Circuit type of thing, aren't they? I mean, I'm telling you. I mean, it, it's funny. It, it's not funny. It's great. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Feinstein's mm-hmm. in Peoria. Feinstein's mm-hmm. in New Delhi. Who knows what's going to be next? So, uh, yeah, I think they've got four or five places going now. So, thank goodness. It's going to be bigger than Walmart. It, it, could, it really could be. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. So you have your uh, concert coming up at Birdland, August fifth uh, through the seventh, which is Thursday through Saturday. Also, every every we we have not mentioned every Monday night at Birdland. Oh yeah, Cast Caruso's party. cast party. Sure. Yeah. The gig the gig goes on and on and on. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Billy. We'll have her. We'll speak to you soon. And all be quiet, heroes, living quiet days. Walking through the world, changing it in quiet ways. Ordinary miracles, like candles in the dark. Each and every one of us lights a spark. And the walls can tumble, and the mountains can move. Broadway Radio is being brought to you today by Upstart. 
Off-Broadway is already back, and Broadway will be back in just a matter of weeks. Tickets are on sale for all the must-see shows, Town, Passover, and Waitress, but you are carrying high credit card balances and you feel like you're in a never-ending cycle of debt. Upstart can help you regain your footing and get things back on track. Upstart is the fast and easy way to pay off your debt with a personal loan, all online. Whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high-interest debt, or funding personal expenses, over half a million people have used Upstart to get one fixed monthly payment. Unlike other lenders, Upstart considers your income and current employment to find you a smarter rate for your loan. With a five-minute online rate check, you can see your rate upfront for loans between $1,000 to $50,000. You can receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash broadway. That's upstart, U-P-S-T-A-R-T, dot com slash broadway. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know that we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based upon your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to upstart.com slash broadway. We'd like to thank Upstart for continuing to support Broadway Radio. So, Michael, you got to see a production of You Are Here over at Lincoln Center. I don't know anything about this. Could you tell us more about it? Yeah, well, it came and went. It, you know, it was just a, um, a, a brief presentation, July 14th through the 30th, on the plaza at Lincoln Center, uh, specifically centered around the reflecting pool. And uh, by the way, it's now called the Hearst Plaza. I'm, I've noticed that uh, names have cropped up uh, in various places around Lincoln Center that we noticed that, that there's now a name of the lobby of the Vivian Beaumont. I don't remember mm. what it was. And there's a name on the reflecting pool. And so I guess they're getting all these naming donors and good for them uh, because that's what keeps these institutions viable, especially at times like this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, yeah, this was quite a, quite an amazing presentation uh, described as a sculpture, sound, and performance installation uh, project of the Arnhold Dance Innovation Fund, that's A-R-N-H-O-L-D, commissioned by Lincoln Center of the Performing Arts. And the creative team was Andrea Miller, uh, was the concept and the choreography. Uh, She was a co-director with Lindsay Peisinger, Composer and sound artist Justin Hicks, production designed by Mimi Lean, a costume designed by Oana Botez. Uh, it's centered around this group called the Gallim, G A L L I M, dancers at, who performed largely in the reflecting pool. Oh. Uh, which turns out to be. Uh, just the right depth for that kind of thing. <laughs> if you go, if you're going to <laughs> dance in a pool, uh, that's where you want to do it. And uh, it was beautiful choreography uh, by Andrea Miller, uh, and they did several numbers in there. And at one point, it was the most amazing thing. We were all sitting in folding chairs around the perimeter of the of the reflecting pool, and at one point, it came to a very dramatic moment in the dance, and uh, the, this huge wind uh, just kind of 
came up and the sky got very dark and we looked up and we saw the clouds covering the sun and uh, there were all these uh, leaves in the area that started to blow very dramatically into the reflecting pool um and it was so infective uh, so effective and so well timed that we honestly thought it, it had it was an effect <laughs> but you know i i mean i was smart enough to realize that there would be no machine that could possibly create that kind of win. So it really was just one of those amazing things. Uh, and that was incredible. The show, um, uh, it, uh, in addition to the dancers, it featured, uh, um, there were these scarecrow-like things around the pool uh, sculptures, and they had speakers in them having, uh, with music coming out and, and uh, people giving monologues about the pandemic and things like that. The show was opened, introduced by an actual security guard wow. at Lincoln Center. Her name is Lila Lomax, and she... Uh, she welcomed everyone and she spoke and she, uh, she did a little bit of a dance uh, with some of the dancers uh, and she gave a little background of her experience during the pandemic. There was also an ICU nurse, an actual ICU Ooh. nurse who gave her monologue while running around the perimeter Whoa. of the reflecting pool. Um, and then there was a, a musician, uh, you know, a member of the musicians union who spoke about, you know how everything stopped at once uh, when the when the pandemic started, and he described he used a wonderful word to describe the feeling that everyone felt, and that word was disconcerted. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I thought that was great. It, it was a very unique, beautiful presentation, and obviously something that um, people uh, thought would be a wonderful way to use the space while we're still waiting to be able to use the actual theaters at Lincoln Center and you know, when it's considered to be safe to do that. So I was very glad that I went. And as I say, it was only a few days, uh, uh, but I was glad that I heard about it and that I, I got to see it. Wow, that's great. Uh, unfortunately, it, it was uh, only through July 30th. Right. And it's part of the restart stages at Lincoln Center, and they have other types of uh, things there. I've put a link in the show notes to restart stages so uh, folks can check out what else is coming up in that series. Yes. So, Peter, I um, I feel mm -hmm. as though that I'm a friend of yours, and mm -hmm. I, I need to stick up for you because there's this <laughs> there's this poser out there, this Dominic McHugh. He's written this book, uh, yeah. and uh, uh, you know your book is called The Great Parade. Right and his book, you know, I think he's riding off for your coattails there because oh, you think so? yeah, his 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 um, his book is called The Big Parade, which is about right. this Meredith Wilson person. But right. uh, you you said it's a, it's something we should actually I, think about I, reading. I I wish I could be as accomplished as <laughs> Doctor Dominic McHugh. By the way, uh, a very distinguished uh, gentleman. Now, he looks as if he's 14 years old, but nevertheless, he has accomplished so much in his tender years uh, on the planet. And um, I, I am certainly um, tremendously impressed with him every time I read anything he writes, including the book Loverly about my fair lady. And uh, here he takes on Meredith Wilson, who um, had a career that was very strange in the musical theater <clears throat> because it was genuinely a law of diminishing returns because he started out with the music man, big hit. Big hit, 1,375 performances. <clears throat> then came The Unsinkable Molly Brown, which was 532 performances. Then came Here's Love, 
which was 334 performances. And then came 1491, which was zero performances. It closed out of town. So, um, so he certainly examines every one of these four shows in great detail, wondrous detail. And um, there are many surprises to be had in it. Um, I was especially attracted to the uh, Here's Love section uh, because I actually saw Here's Love on Broadway um, deep into its run. And, you know, this is interesting. This is the musical version of Miracle on 34th Street. And it opened in October and it ran until July. Um, we're talking about 63, 64. Now, the thing is, which, by the way, is part of the great parade season that I wrote about. But the irony is, here's a Christmas musical when you come right down to it, isn't it? I mean, after all, Miracle on 34th Street. And nobody gave a thought to the fact that, um, well, we don't have to worry about the fact that uh, it won't be Christmas most of the time the show is playing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hope it's going to run for years. Um, yeah. Um, so. Um, and Dominic McHugh points out a very interesting fact, which may surprise everybody else, uh, is that the movie Miracle on 34th Street in 1947 opened in May. Hmm. You wouldn't expect that. You know, hmm. and uh, another factor that's very, very important is that usually movies that want to uh, get Oscar consideration and do get Oscar consideration opened the last week of the year. And you would think that that would be the logical time for Miracle on 34th Street to open. But even though it opened in May, it wound up getting um, nominations and it won three awards. Two of them were for writing. Um, and um, and also uh, Edmund Gwen, who played Santa Claus, won, uh, Chris Kringle, I should say, um, won uh, the Best Supporting Actor in, in uh, Oscars. So that's pretty impressive. But anyway, in terms of Here's Love, one of the things that was really something that I had no idea had happened was the fact that Meredith Wilson uh, wrote a um, an, uh, an essay in the um, souvenir booklet when they uh, opened their out-of-town tryout in Detroit, and it got picked up by the New York Herald Tribune. And um, Wilson's complained that uh, writers today create, I'm quoting now, create plays that do not entertain audiences and the audiences stay home. Uh, Well, as it turned out when it was reprinted in the Herald Tribune, who took issue with this but Stephen Sondheim? He took out time from writing his very maverick show, Anyone Can Whistle, to write a letter to the editor. And the response was a little more vitriolic than one might have expected. Um, McHugh condenses the um, letter into 12 sentences, but the tone can be gleaned from its concluding sentence, which was, look at statistics, Mr. Wilson. Freshness is even commercial. Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf is bringing back the audiences that the unsinkable Molly Brown drove out. Oh. Whoa, them's fighting words. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, really, of course, one has to wonder what Meredith Wilson thought when anyone can whistle open and closed during Here's Love's time on Broadway, uh, because Here's Love, uh, though not a barn burner, needless to say, ran uh, 37 times longer than anyone can whistle. So, um, you know, that's so it really is very, very interesting. And to be fair, uh, Meredith Wilson um, was one of these people, one of these composers who uh, wasn't afraid or, or, or dared to or settled for, depending on the way you want to look at it, taking songs that he had written years before and putting them in shows. Um, the original title for Here's Love was The Wonder
Wonderful Plan. Why? Because he had written a song for, for the music man called The Wonderful Plan, but it didn't make the show. And then he put it in The Unsinkable and Ollie Brown, but it didn't make the show. And um, then he put it in Here's Love, um, but it didn't make the show either. I mean, you know, so, um, you know, I mean, <laughs> this is a guy from the Hawkeye State. Um, and uh, so he really was, as one of his songs uh, was titled Iowa Stubborn in terms of this. And I guess he did have that Midwestern value of waste not, want not, who knows? So, uh, but th- the fact that it didn't make here's love certainly wasn't a case of third times the charm, but three strikes and you're out. He didn't try to put it in um, 1491, which, uh, as you may have inferred, was about Columbus and Columbus trying to convince uh, the Spain's royalty to let him go on this voyage to the new world. Um, not a bad idea. And it opened, by the way, only a few months in, in, out of town, of course, as I said, um, only a few months, only a few months after uh, <laughs> 1776 opened on Broadway. So here was another uh, date centric title. And um, I have to say that I, I got the demo once and um, I thought it was truly atrocious, but, McHugh makes such a good case for this show in terms of certain songs that he really feels are worthwhile that I've got to go back and give it a listen. And um, so when I'm driving uh, tomorrow uh, on a little road trip, uh, I'm certainly going to take it with me. And for better or worse, I'll listen to 1491 again. But, you know, this is the wonderful thing about these books. You know, you start reading about these shows and you're reading about these songs and suddenly you're pulling out the Music Man album you haven't listened to in a long time. You're pulling out Molly Brown. You're pulling out Here's Love. And that's the great thing about these books. They really make you go back to the albums and appreciate them even more than you did when you first heard them. I haven't read that book yet, but uh, this must be in it. And and uh, this relates to something you just said. I, I believe I've heard that originally the Music Man was uh, only planned to include a pre- already existing songs written by uh wilson did you did, is that yes. in there yeah uh, yes yeah no and um, and when you think about it you can almost look at the score and and guess which ones were pre-existing sure probably, probably shapoopy which has nothing to do with anything right uh you know uh, pres- barbershop quartet so. exactly exactly yeah, yeah. so i thought that was amazing and then the other thing i wanted to say was i haven't read this book yet but it's high on my list uh when janice page was on our podcast a few years ago, the star of Here's Love. I believe she mentioned that part of the reason that it didn't go so well is that it was a bad time uh, personally uh, for Meredith Wilson. And so he, you know, obviously had things on his mind and maybe he wasn't at his at his peak as far as songwriting. Um, so you never know what's going to go into a a hit or a success or a, or a flop, right? Well, uh, there's a great deal in the book about the fact that uh, the director was um, somebody that he really, really didn't like. I uh, mm-hmm. didn't like what he was doing at all. And it's surprising, um, you know, if you get the cast album, the, the original director's name is not there, but it's surprising to see who that original director was. And it was no less than Norman Jewison, mm-hmm. who of course made many successful movies and even one musical movie that was successful, Fiddler on the Roof. But um, two. It's re- <laughs> I'm so was oh Jesus Christ Superstar was yeah, too, right? Great, yeah. yeah, that's <laughs> right. That's a terrific I think yeah. that's a terrific movie, by the yes, way. Yes, yes. Um the musical numbers peak exactly where they should peak. And yep. so um so um as a result, um we we find out uh, that Norman Jewison was involved and uh, there are a few quotations from Norman Jewison in his um autobiography that uh give his side of the story. And um you find out that uh it wasn't just Meredith Wilson he didn't get along with, but uh, Meredith Wilson's wife had a lot 
lot to say. And Meredith Wilson listened to uh, uh, his wife. And there were a lot of yes steerings going on. So uh, so that was um, pretty interesting as well. So uh, but yes, trunk songs abound in Meredith Wilson's <laughs> musical, for better or worse. And you can really feel it in um, Here's Love with the song She Had to Go Back, uh, which is really irrelevant to what's going on. Though McHugh makes a very interesting point that um, <clears throat> that he he changed the character from uh, of Fred Gailey. Um, he, he, by the way, changed the spelling of his name, but he didn't change the name. And it's sort of surprising, you know, the Gailey, you know, would be used uh, even in 63. Um, but uh, that he, he changed the character to be a little more misogynistic. And McHugh points out this song really has a very similar feeling to a hymn to him mm-hmm. um, in um in my fair lady and in uh, and i'm an online man too because it, it deals <laughs> the, the lyric uh, and spend it searching for her glove well glove is a very important part of she had to go back so uh so yeah a lot of parallel he really thinks of a lot of wonderful things and that's dominic McHugh. so uh interesting to me is that this dominic McHugh is um uh, he's based in England. Uh, I can't yeah, really figure yeah. out if he's from England. It looks like he is uh, yeah. educated and born in Lancashire. So yes, he's. But uh, he's writing about all the Americans. The uh, uh, his books include um, musical theater screen adaptations, which focus on on the town, letters of Cole Porter, Alan J. Lerner, as you mentioned. Mm. Uh, my Fair Lady, Loverly, The Life and Times of My Fair Lady, plus oh, Meredith yeah. Wilson. So, uh, uh, waiting for the great Andrew Lloyd Webber book. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> we'll see. But uh, he seems pretty accessible. We should see if we can get him on. He sounds oh, that'd be, sound he'd, really he'd be interesting yeah. to talk to. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, he really is musical theater all the way. And because I'm eight times older than he is, uh, <laughs> when I went to England, I mean, he got up early in the morning to meet me. He had to go to class and all that kind of stuff. But he, you know, he could listen to me talk about the shows that I saw that he didn't uh, until uh, the cows came home, went to sleep, got up in the morning and continued their day in the pasture. So um, really a very, very special guy. Great. So, Michael, you also uh, would like to talk about the bio, Mike Nichols, A Life by Mark Harris. So uh, tell us what you thought about that. Oh, it's such a great book. It's received so much deserved praise. I, mm-hmm. I, I bought it a while ago, but I, I hadn't started it until recently because I had another book that I really wanted to finish. Uh, and so, but once I did start it, I, I just consumed it. <laughs> um, it's, it's so well written and so fascinating, so well researched. Uh, very, very, very entertaining uh, book about it. Fascinating life and career. And I could talk for an hour about it, but I I promise I won't. There's a couple of things in it that were so fascinating. I thought I would mention uh, there's a lot of attempt to uh, give some kind of a bead on Nichols' directorial style. because I've heard so much about that over the years. and, and, And I was really interested in that aspect of it. It sounds as if when he was directing comedy, he could be very, very, very meticulous in terms of timing uh, and also uh, and and in terms of staging. Uh, when he was directing a drama, or, or not not so much, but 
but in the case of a comedy, uh, for example, for the odd couple, uh, he is credited with choreographing that poker game down to the nanosecond uh, so that it would be entertaining for the audience to watch and it would, would not be static. And apparently that, uh, you know, that's how the show opens with the poker game. Uh, and there's, and it, is featured in several other scenes. And so that's a, a lot of people credit that strong opening with the great success of the odd couple or certainly helping it. So, um, so that it sounds like, yeah, comedy wise, he was, he, he d- would describe comedy as a science and he would break it down and they would really work on the beats and the timing and all of that stuff necessary to make it funny but uh with a drama he would seemingly be very hands-off he would uh they would read the play a lot and 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 discuss it and he would tell stories from his life and career that that would seem to have really nothing to do uh with with the play but then uh the actors would think about it afterwards and and understand that there was a connection there somewhere uh with what he had the story he had told them. Um, But it even got to the point where it says when when he was working on that production of the seagull at the Delacorte with Meryl Streep and Kevin Klein and Philip Seymour Hoffman, even Meryl Streep who had worked with him previously in films said, when is he going to start directing? (laughs) Uh, Because he he was just, he would just talk, you know, but it was a way to make people comfortable and to bond with them. And then he would, say he would direct by suggestion like he would say a few words like maybe you know uh maybe think of as if you were and then he would give a metaphor and that would be enough for them to latch on to so it's really amazing to read these testimonials uh to him by all of these people that Mark Harris got to talk about him uh you know some really some of the greatest uh artists, theater artists, and film artists of the, of the 20th century. Um, and then the, the other, other thing I wanted to mention, uh, just in closing, is three might-have-beens that didn't happen. Uh, there were many things that, of course, that, that he talked about doing that didn't wind up happening for one reason or another. Um, one of them is that one of the last uh, discussions he had was with John Patrick Shanley about directing that play Prodigal Son. Uh, which wound up being done uh, at Manhattan Theater Club off-Broadway with Timothy Chalamet in it and also Robert Sean Leonard. I think Shanley himself wound up directing that, didn't he? That sounds right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that's one thing. But also, get this, (laughs) two projects he discussed with Meryl Streep that didn't happen. One was a, a film of Masterclass. Mm-hmm. with Meryl Streep, which apparently was going to be filmed in, it said in Queens, I assume, in Kaufman Astoria, and, and really mounted almost as a, as a stage production, a full stage production, and then filmed over several performances and turned into a, a film. Uh, so that didn't happen. But then the other one was uh, uh, what it might have been, a remake of A Little Night Music with Streep. Mm-hmm. Film or mm-hmm. stage? Film. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um I'll I'll do a a, a different um look at uh, this Mike Nichols book in in, a, in a, I'm I'm taking it from a different angle. Um and that is the fact that when I got it 
I immediately looked in the index for love, L-U-V, a play that um, made me mm. laugh so hard that still when I see the lamppost outside the booth theater, I always think of that day when I came out of the theater and had to lean against it. I was laughing so hard. <laughs> but here's my point. So I'm reading about love and I continue reading and I continue reading and I continue reading. The thing is, every time I looked in the index to find something I want to read about the odd couple, for example, it would then after the odd couple section was over, after the love section was over, I kept on going and going and going because this book is so arresting and so wonderful that um, I just had to stay with it no matter what he was talking about. <laughs> yes, agreed. So on uh, July 5th, uh, Jan Simpson and I talked on Broadway Radio about her summer reading list, and we and this uh, Mike Nichols book was on the list as well. And one of the topics that Jan and I talked about was that uh, Mark Harris did not just write the nice things about Ni Mike Nichols. Mm -hmm. uh, he, right. he, which I think is really important when you're reading a biography is that you get a, a none of us are perfect and all, mm -hmm. all of us have uh, bad moments at mm -hmm. one point or another. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he was able to really give us a, uh, what I felt was, uh, an even-handed and and a three sixty view of Mike Nichols, which I re I really appreciated in the in this book. It's just such a quite quite a good book. I mean, and that uh, and and the uh, July fifth uh, tangentially the July fifth show that with uh, Jan Simpson we had an interview with Eddie Shapiro, uh, and we talked about uh, his book as well. So uh, if you're interested in uh, theater related books, go back to that July fifth episode. There's some really great things in there about that. And if you're not interested in theater-related books, why are you here? Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. So that uh, wraps it up for today. Before we get on to trivia and the musical moment, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of Broadway Video to uh, subscribe. That way, every, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to your finer podcasts. Podcast, you'll find Broad Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and me can be found in the show notes at Broadway Radio, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today, including uh, Billy Stritch's uh, sh upcoming shows, his album, uh, all sorts of other other stuff there. And I have a link back to the Jan Simpson uh, 2021 summer reading list uh, if you want to listen to that as well. So, Peter, do we have an answer for last week's trivia? Cole Porter, in one of his hits, made a rhyme that purposely had a character mispronounce a word when singing the title of an Oscar-winning film. But to be fair, Porter wasn't just making a rhyme. The mispronunciation had become an idiom over the years, and theatergoers had undoubtedly heard it before they saw Porter's show or heard the cast album. Well, what I'm talking about is Kiss Me Kate, where Petruchio sings, Where is the life that late I led? In which he asks, Where's the fund I used to find? Where is it now? Gone with the wind. And pronouncing gone with the wind in that way really was a joke at the time. And as Tony Janicki pointed out, Lorenz Hart used it too earlier in The Lady is a Tramp when he wrote Babes in Arms. <laughs> <clears throat> Nevertheless, Tony, Tony only finished second for Steve Bell got it first, followed by <laughs> Jack Leshner, Brigadude. You know, I hope somebody starts writing in as Schmigadude. That would be nice. You know? <laughs> Paul Whitty, Jeff Hickman, and Kathy Jones. This week's question. There have been love songs written in three-quarter time. A Heart Full of Love and for Les Mis, for example. There have been love songs written in 4-4, four, four, Do You Love Me from Fiddler. There have been love songs written in 6-8, Freddie, My Love from Greece. 
Some love songs have been poignant. I loved you once in silence from Camelot. Some have been peppy. I love Betsy from Honeymoon in Vegas. Some, especially by Cole Porter, have been Beguines. But there is a Broadway love song that is not a ballad, not a waltz, but a march. Yes, a march. Although, here's a hint. The show, whose name I, well, I won as well as the song title, didn't open in March. So, what's the song, the love song, that's a march? Hmm. Okay, if you have an answer for that, email us at uh, trivia at Broadway Radio, and we'll let you know if you're on the right track. I almost forgot the email address after all these years. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Michael, uh, we have so much to choose from, from Billy's catalog. Yes. Uh, what are we thinking about for the musical moment for uh, today? Well, we thought uh, we would open the show with Lazy Afternoon. Mm. Uh, from Billy's new album, a beautiful, beautiful song from the Golden Apple uh, music by Jerome Moross. Is that how you pronounce it? I don't know. I don't know. But he was a great composer, and I wish he had done more. Yeah, I always don't want to say morose because. Yeah, yeah sure. It's very morose. <laughs> sure. Uh, mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, music by him. Uh, lyrics by John Latouche, who I think is regarded as one of the great lyricists, even though his output is not that extensive. Because he died very young. Yes, because he died very young. And, and uh, uh, But, you know, in terms of quality, not quantity, he was absolutely one of the greats. Uh, and that is, as I say, from Billy's new album, Billy's Place. And I think you will enjoy it very much. And then for the musical moment, to end our podcast, I... Uh, Again, as James said, there was so much to choose from. But there was an album that Billy did with Clea Blackhurst uh, some years ago called Dreaming of a Song, the Music of Hoagie Carmichael. Mm. And um, there is a song on there that I've always loved. It's called In the Cool, Cool, Cool of the Evening, uh, which is music by Hoagie Carmichael and lyrics by Johnny Mercer. And this was uh, a song that apparently had been written some years earlier, but wasn't used until uh, it was used in a 1951 film called Here Comes the Groom uh, with uh, Bing Crosby and Jane Wyman. And uh, it went over so big in that movie that it won the Academy Award for Best Original Song. So I think it's great. The music is fabulous. The lyrics by Johnny Mercer are absolutely hilarious and and very, very, very clever. And I think it's a good note on which to end our podcast. All right. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. He'll get a Bye. We'll rent a tent or teepee. Let the town cry a cry. And if it's RSVP, this is what I'll reply. In the cool, cool, cool of the evening, tell them I'll be there. In the cool, cool, cool of the evening, better save a chair. When the party's getting a glow on, sing and fills the air. In the shake of the night when the doings are right, you can tell them I'll be there. We said the bumblebee, let's have a jubilee. When said the prairie hen, soon. Sure, said the dinosaur. Where, said the grizzly bear. Under the light of the moon. How about your brother jackass? Everyone gaily cried. 
Are you coming to the fracas? Over his specs, he sighed. In the cool, cool, cool of the cool evening. Of the evening. Slick I'm on my hair When the party's getting a glow on And singing fills the air If I ain't in the clink and there's something to drink You could tell them I'll be there If I can crawl out of bed, put a hat on my head You could tell them I'll be there If I can find the right sock by 11 o'clock You could tell them I'll be there If there's room for two more and you need us, why sure Tell them 